Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Welcome to the first part of this very special look at Jaguars in competition. Once again, I'm Paul Tarsi, and I'm joined by regular Historic Racing News radio show team, Jim Roller, Paul Jurd, and Joe Bradley. We'll be talking to some real Jaguar experts. Bill Adam will discuss his days co-driving with Bob Tullius, in those glorious IMSA Jaguar XJR5s and 6 and 7. Philip Porter, who's acknowledged as a leading Mark expert, will talk about the E-Type. And we'll have some thoughts from Peter Snowden and Grant Williams about peddling those beasts around the circuits right up to the present day. In this two-part show, we'll take a trip down memory lane and talk about everything from C-Types and D-Types of nearly 70 years ago. Jim Roller, Jaguar was the definition of the European sports car in the 50s and 60s, wasn't it? Well, indeed it was, Paul, and thank you for including me in this quite British program. I suspect that (laughs) that, uh, I'm just here so you all can hear me say Jaguar. Uh, (laughs) Jaguar. (laughs) Yeah, Jaguar. There you go. There you go. No, I I was taught the correct pronunciation many years ago. So, Uh, But yes, it was uh, the quintessential European sports car. It was the element of cool. It it was just that, you know, it was the flat cap and the tweed jacket and the pipe and everything that was, uh, uh, to the to the typical American, you saw Jaguar and you saw Alan Decadney standing next to it, you know. That. <laughs> I thought that you'd actually just seen what I wear to the Goodwood Revival. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have seen what you wear there. <laughs> well, there is, there is that. <laughs> Paul, you've been going... Through those times in the in the fifties, particularly when, let's face it, all the world was in black and white, and you've had a, a look back at those early days. And that's right. Yeah, I think that the car that really started the Jaguar sporting heritage was was the XK one twenty, which was a sporty two seater that was remarkably aerodynamic for the late nineteen forties when it was revealed to the world, and uh, also at one point the fastest production car in the world. And um, I think it's also worth, just as an aside, remembering that the Jaguar name only began to be used in 1945. Prior to then, William Lyons had run the company as SS Cars. And um, unfortunately, I think with those initials, they weren't really going to be selling a lot past World War II, were they? (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll tell you something else, Paul, which is that uh, if you look at the the logo used by the um, Swallow Sports Car Company, SS, in those uh, sort of 35, 36, 37 years, um, it is uncannily like those ones that were used in uh, in Germany at that time and beyond. So, um, yes, I think a very oui. wise move by William Lyons to move into the Jaguar name. That's right. So that, that XK140, you know, it's worth just you know, Googling a picture of it because even today it's a beautiful car. And already we were seeing those classic, some of the classic Jaguar themes that had a 3.4 litre straight six engine. 
you know, around 160 horsepower. But that speed record, a very, very brave person, 132 miles an hour on a long straight highway in Belgium in 1949. And, you know, quite naturally, having set a speed record, you know, they took it racing just a few months later in August that year at Silverstone. And, um, yep, that really gave, you know, I think gave Jaguar the bug because, you know, we've got two programs now. And one phrase that's going to crop up all the way through is Le Mans. And uh, three light index K120s actually gave Jaguar their Le Mans debut in 1950. And this was in a scenario where Jaguar didn't even have a competition department. So although the factory of the cars, you know, the factory prepared the cars, technically they were actually private entries, but they were run at the race under the direction of the company's service manager, Raymond Lofty England. And, uh, you know, a man who saw the C-types and the D-types to great success later in that decade. And, uh, you know, they ran as high as second before various issues saw the two survivors come home 12th and 15th. And, um, you know, that inspired the board of uh, Jaguar to take the motorsport seriously. And uh, William Lyons declared that Le Mans was the only race worth winning. And, uh, you know, they did take it serious and they took it in, with style when uh, they produced the XK120C, which is that more normally referred to as the C-type. Now, this was the first Jaguar designed purely for competition. And it used elements of the XK120. It had, you know, it had the powertrain, but with the engine tuned to 205 horsepower, bigger valves, high lift cams, twin SU carbs. So gained 40 horsepower, but it was also 450 kilos lighter. And, you know, that, that's a racing dream, isn't it? You've got more power and you are lighter. And, you know, we look back at the C-Type now and we think, oh, it's a C-Type. It's from years ago. But worth remembering, this was the supercar of its time. It looks stunning. You know, that. The C-types appeared at Le Mans in 1951. The Taubo that won in 1950 had wheels with mud guards over them, two big lights, circular lights sticking up above the bodywork off the front. It instantly looked an antique compared to what Jaguar turned up with in 1951. And, you know, that 1951 was a great success for them. Peter Peter Walker and Peter Whitehead won by 11 laps ahead of one of the Taubos. And Sterling Moss took 6.7 seconds off the lap record. In his car, and admittedly he retired, but you know th- these cars were quick. Sports car design really just you know, taken this leap forward, and amazingly, the, the car had been designed and developed in secret. Even a week before that Le Mans race, all that was known is that Jaguar were preparing something special for the race. Can you imagine that these days? It just wouldn't happen. There'd be PR yeah. departments <laughs> all over it. It's so, incredible to think of, isn't it, that uh, that they were able to do that, particularly as they drove them down to the circuit, didn't they? But very much so, you know, and the, 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 you know this, which was just what you did in those days. You know, it wasn't anything special. Everybody did it. And, you know, this was the first Le Mans win for a British car since Bentley in 1930. And just to prove it wasn't any fluke, then uh, they promptly headed for the Tourist Trophy at Dun- in Dundrod. And, you know, it's worth remembering that the Tourist Trophy at that time was a major race. And Dundrod, you know, a seven-mile lap on public roads was a hell of a circuit. And they took one, two, three with Sterling Moss taking the win. Now, you know, Jaguar, again, instantly onto this development thing. So the C-Type was you know, an early adopter of disc brakes. You know, Moss actually running a car with disc brakes at Goodwood in 1952 on Easter Monday and coming fourth place, sharing it with Norman Dewis. And the pair used that same car to uh, in that year's Milmelia and were actually third at Rome before they retired. But that Milmelia was also the cause of their the more downfall that year. Moss actually telegrammed Sir William Lyons from Italy and said, we're going to need more speed. He'd seen how quick the Mercedes were at the Milmelia. And so at the last minute, they actually brought in a new bodywork change and dropped a lower and more aerodynamic front bodywork, which meant that they uh, you know, smaller radiators on the car. And uh, sadly, all three cars retired early, two of them just due to that overheating. So in 1953, 
Jaguar were back again with the E-Type, again with now even more power, lightweight bodywork, new rear suspension, and those fully sorted Dunlop disc brakes. And they were imperious at Le Mans. Tony Rolton, Duncan Hamilton winning, Sterling Moss and Peter Walter second, Peter Whitehead and Ian Stewart fourth. And you know, it was just the speed of the C-Type and its ability to stop better than the other cars, just wore out the Alphas, the Ferraris and the Lancias that were chasing them. And, you know, the C-Type was a staple of club and national events for many years. But 53 was really its peak because by 1954, the factory had a new weapon, the famous D-Type. And the D-Type was really an an evolution of the C-Type, but really taking some of those ideas. It featured a central monocoque as opposed to the space frame of the C-Type, which was advanced for the early 1950s. You know, we had that familiar three and a half litre engine, but now it's inclined to allow room for the three twin choke Webbers had those disc brakes, had that elegant aluminium body with that distinctive rear tail fin. You know, you see that on modern LMP cars, that fin at the back, and there is the D-Type sporting it in the 1950s with that high-speed stability. And I think if the XK120 announced the Jaguar as a sports car manufacturer and the C-Type saw them, you know, claim that first success, it was the D-Type that really put Jaguar right up there as a serious competitor, Ferrari, Alfa, Romeo, and all the other great marks. And uh, that 1954 Le Mans saw two of the works D-types retire. Moss lost his brakes at the Mulsanne corner. Not something you want to do that often, to be quite honest. And uh, yeah, Whitehead had engine issues, but uh, Rolt and Hamilton were second chasing the lead Ferrari. And um, Rolt had to repair for bodyworks after stumbling over a slow Talbo. But the Ferrari also then failed to fire up after its final stop and was stationary for six minutes. And uh, when it rejoined, the team had literally blown, you know, blown two of the regulations about what you're allowed to do to the car in the pits wide apart. And after the end of the race, when the, the Ferrari did take the flag first, the, uh, the French officials actually offered the Jaguar the chance to protest. And the decision was bounced up the line to William Lyons himself, who came back and said, if we can't win it on the road, we don't win it at all. How very British. It is, isn't it? It's, it's wonderful. That's the attitude, isn't it? <laughs> Sadly, we don't get that these days. And, uh, yeah, the D-Type then went on to win the Reims 24-hour race, another quick circuit really suited for Le Mans. And, uh, you know, then they went into 1955 when you had Mike Hawthorne and Phil, w- Phil Waters coax their ailing D-Type to a win at Sebring. And uh, that was a, with a 1954 car. But, again, this development thing saw the 1955 D-Type really come really sorted. 270 horsepower now, a new longer aerodynamic nose, a wraparound windscreen that merged into that headrest and that fin. And the car took its first win in the hands of Hawthorne and Ivor Burb, but only really, sadly, after the draw of the Mercedes team in response to that tragic accident that claimed the lives of so many spectators. And again, there was another one, two and three at Reims. And the car was you know, a race winner, not only for the factory, but now in private hands. And it was those privateers that came to Jaguar's rescue in 1956 when the Le Mans car, you know, the factory cars faltered, two going out in the same third lap incident. And it was the Akiri costume of Ninian Sanderson and Ron Flockhart who came through to win. Now, that, that Le Mans was the last outing for the factory team. The pressure was on to devote more resources to the road car development. But with 42 D-types having been built, that's a, that's a fair old thing for a race car, isn't it? They raced on with Akiri cost taking first at second at Le Mans. The next year, two, with two Belgian engine entered cars, third and fourth, and another D-type six, a five out of the top six. And the D-Type's reign was really only ended in 1958 when new rules reducing engine capacity to three litres came in and uh, the downsized XK engine was just plain unreliable. But, you know, certainly the, the D-Type was, has to be one of the greatest sports cars ever. 
And in just a few years, Jaguar had made their name on the international stage, taken five Le Mans wins. And really, that was the only race that William Lyons thought actually sold his cars. And I think uh, an awful lot of manufacturers since then have probably felt the same way. I I don't think that William Lyons is, is alone in that. Jim, I mean, in, in the US, presumably, the Jaguar name was growing all the time at that, uh, at that time. Well, yeah, you heard uh, Paul talk about their success at Sebring, and it was a car that, again, the, the C-types and D-types are what put Jaguar on the map. And 1955 proved to be uh, a big year, not only because of the Le Mans success, but that's when Sir William Lyons started to get involved with one of America's leading racing personalities. And I say personality because it was Briggs Cunningham was a playboy, international bon vivant. I mean, he was uh, at what I said earlier about Alan Decadene with the flat cap and standing next to the E-type. Well, well, uh, Briggs Cunningham would have been right out of central casting uh, for that. <laughs> and as, as many of you know, uh, Briggs, was famous uh, in Europe, as famous as he was in the United States because of things like the Le Monster Spider, which he took to Le Mans in 1950, and then all of the Cunningham C series cars, uh, the C2, the C3, the C4R, which uh, uh, he won his class in uh, at, at Sebring, had a top five at Le Mans in 54 with that car. Uh, but 1954 was a, was a tough year for Briggs because he and the uh, Internal Revenue Service here in the United States, the IRS got into a little tete-a-tete. And um, the IRS deemed that the Cunningham race car operation, amongst all his other business interests and everything else, was a hobby and not a business. So therefore, he couldn't write off the losses of the car manufacturing against his his other companies. And so that really made building the race cars uh, fiscally untenable for him. And while all this was going on, one of his drivers, Gordon Bennett, had a, who happened to have a relationship with Sir William Lyons, was kind of trying to act as a matchmaker between Cunningham and, and Lyons. And um, uh, Lyons told Bennett, and, and unbeknownst to, to, to Sir William Lyons, uh, Cunningham, unbeknownst to him, were these IRS difficulties. So, so Lyons saw Cunningham as a, as a competitor in, into the future, and he had told Bennett that if Cunningham would stop building race cars, he would give Cunningham three D-types. Well, that was a <laughs> lot of that was a that was a lot of cash in in nineteen. 19- <laughs> <laughs> 55 money, considering that those D-types sold for about $10,000 each in, in 1955. So over the span of two meetings at Lamar and Watkins Glen, Briggs and, and Lyons hammered out a deal that Briggs would become the exclusive Jaguar distributor in the northeast of the United States. And in return, he'd get three D-types. And of course, he'd be too busy to to build his own race cars because he would be pushing the sale of uh, Jaguars in the Northeast. So uh, he was able to continue his racing operations without having and, and stop building his cars. And 
Sir William Lyons ended up helping him out. And while that would be as 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 Richard Petty would finally say, one of them deals. Um, <laughs> and it was a little shady on Briggs on, on Briggs's part. It, it proved to be a good. It proved ultimately to be a great deal for for Jaguar. So in '55, the arrangement really began, and uh, Cunningham had one of his famous. And, and Cunningham always insisted that the American white paint scheme with the blue stripes would be carried on all of his cars. And that, and that carried on through his relationship with Jaguar. And in 55, he had, he showed up at Le Mans with it, with a D type and that, that actual car chassis XKD 507 now resides at the revs Institute in Florida. So if you're ever uh, in the Naples area, that uh, you can you can actually get a, a, an up close look at, at that actual car. The car retired in the seventh hour with a faulty distributor, but the car didn't have any of those kind of problems when they brought it back home after Le Mans. Um, the SCCA, the Sports Car Club of America, had started a new C Sports class, and it was it was destined to be, and the SCCA wanted it to be the premier class for for the club there was a during that time the late 50s early 60s there was a kind of a strange crossover between amateur and professional racing in the united states and the scca and the united states road racing championship things of that nature all everybody kind of showed up at at both really no matter your your uh, true distinction sherwood johnston who was another of cunningham's regular drivers he and he was the one who had gone to Lamar with Cunningham. Uh, he and Cunningham uh, ended up winning the title that year in '55, defeating the likes of a young upstart by the name of Phil Hill in a in a Ferrari. <laughs> so, and then that success carried on for the next basically seven years. Uh, in '56, there was a huge uh, step forward. Cunningham entered those three D-types for John Fitch, uh, Bennett, who was, uh, you remember, helped him cut the original deal in Sherwood. And at the season opener at a little racetrack now defunct in Cumberland, Maryland, all three cars had were were, they had their butts kicked by this New Jersey amateur by the name of Walt Hansgen. And he had a fourth D-type that was entered by one of Cunningham's customers because Cunningham being the, the distributor, he sold uh, to a dealer in Boston and Hensgen was an outstanding young talent. Uh, Cunningham two weeks later hired Hensgen and over the next seven years, the two of them dominated uh, East coast road racing with, with the D type. Uh, and then later on Lister Jags, uh, Hansigan was so good, guys, that in 1958, um, the kind of the unsung hero of Briggs Cunningham's operation was a guy by the name of Alfred Momo, and Alfred was the well, how do I, he, he was kind of the he was the engineering genius um, for for Cunningham, and he had through the arrangement that Cunningham made with. Jaguar had gotten a relationship with Sir William Lyons himself, 
And in 58, he took Hansigan to Coventry for a tour of the factory and to run some races in the UK. Hansigan won all three of the races he entered. He, he won at Goodwood in a 3.4 liter Jaguar sedan. And then the following weekend, he won a sports car race and a Formula Libre race at Snedderden. So Walt Hansigan is one of those, uh, he, he doesn't get the acclaim and fame of an A.J. Foyt and a Dan Gurney and a Phil Hill. But Walt Hansgen was one of America's great race car drivers, and he was able to to build that reputation uh, mainly because of his success in, in the D-type. Um, the Listers, um, which is a kind of total departure from from everything, they were the, the tube frame, very lightweight cars with uh, with Jaguar engines, and they also did quite well. They were lighter and faster. They, they like the D-types in the United States, won instantly. But the Lister didn't satisfy Cunningham's wonderlust. Um, he was always looking for something new, and he decided that he wanted to move on to sailing. And this uh, happened to coincide with uh, the America's Cup defense. And so after the 1958, somewhat through the 1959 season, he moved on to sailing and and the America's Cup. Now, he he did dabble with uh, Jaguar a couple more times. He entered an E2A in 1960 for Dan Gurney and Hansigan. At Le Mans, the car unfortunately had engine trouble and dropped out after six six hours. And then in 1962, Cunningham entered two E-types at Sebring in Le Mans, uh, where he was the driver. He took the class win with John Fitch at Sebring and took best of the rest honors with Roy Salvadori finishing fourth behind Ferrari, uh, who had a podium sweep that year. And I think I think it's very interesting and and. I don't know if irony is the right word, but for all of Cunningham's efforts and success that they had with the D-type, his best success at Le Mans came with the E-type basically after he had ended his relationship with Jaguar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's... uh, No figure. (laughs) That is ironic. (laughs) That is ironic, isn't it? It's it's really interesting, the, uh, the whole piece of Jaguar in the USA, because... Part of it was because it was by far the biggest potential market for Jaguar. Um, the other part is that we were being told here in, in the UK that it was uh, export or die was literally the message from the government. The Second World War had left the country virtually bankrupt and foreign currency was everything. So there was huge pressure on manufacturers in every, in every sphere of industry to export, so it was a well, natural thing to do anywhere as well. Didn't the the Jaguar? Didn't the folks in Coventry have some labor uh, issues in the late fifties? Because um, Cunningham lists that as one of the reasons he was starting to lose interest in motorsport and wanted to look at America's Cup was uh, some of the labor strife that was happening in in the UK around the British auto manufacturers. Is that is that true, or is that uh, yes. a, a fable that's been passed down? No, it's 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 very true, and and Jaguar from pretty much the the outset was at odds with its uh, its workforce, and 
that got worse and worse, as we will hear. But nonetheless, yes, it was a, a an ongoing problem. You touched there, Jim, on the fact that it wasn't just sports cars, that there was more to Jaguar in those days on the on the racetrack and that their four-door saloon cars were very much a, a feature of saloon car races, mainly in the UK, partly in Europe, and that we talked to Grant Williams, whose family is lucky enough to own two of the most famous of those cars. Grant Williams, many people will know you from your exploits in the lovely Dove Grey Jaguar Mark One by One. Uh, that's the registration number. And uh, that's it's a, you know, it's a fabulous car. Looks great. Interesting, isn't it, that so many iconic Jaguars are, named, are known by their registration numbers. You know, the 774RW on the, on the E-Type and by One and... Uh, ECD 400 on the on the original yes. E-Type and all those kind of things and and that this is this is by one. What's the history of that car, Grant? Um, well, basically, it was a it's a factory built car. Uh, it was built in '59 by the factory for John Coombs. Um, and what the idea was, it was to race in the British Touring Car Championship at the time. Um, and they were when when they were they were commissioned. Well, the one with the Aston one was built, okay. But the factory said, look, no, we can't just build one. We're gonna, we'll build seven of them, basically. Um, and then various other teams had other cars because they didn't want just to have one car out there because they were totally experimental. Right. Everything from, you know, they, they had aluminium doors, uh, boot and bonnets, triple carburetors. Uh, they were all lightened off, alley dash, alley door panels, um, wire wheels, disc brakes. You know, they, they were way ahead of their oh, time. Wow. Yeah, they were very, 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 very important cars. Um, and they dominate. They dominated everything, basically, when they raced. So, and obviously, my car is, on the, is virtually the only one left, as far as we know. And what were, they, what were the regulations like that allowed them to have that, that degree of modernization? Uh, they were pretty good at the time. They, they, when they regulated the cars back in the day, but there's a lot of there's a lot of myths and rumors about it because like the triple carbs, um, they homologated the car and they kept the bonnet closed for most of the time. You mean know, just to hide because they didn't want other teams knowing what they were doing basically with the cars. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was a lot of cloak and daggers with the car at the time. Um, and then the base granddad was racing right through the fifties, um, and he used you know he used to race against back in the day. Uh, he went up against the car back when it was sort of sold on. And then he heard it come up for sale in 62. And then he went after it then. Once he heard it was a sale, that was it. He wanted the car. And was that from John Coombs? Uh, no. He basically he bought off Lofty. Oh, right. Yeah. So it, it was he bought off Lofty. And then and this time my family, because my, my grandfather and my father always raced Jags. Uh, my, my, aunt, my, both, my uncles both raced Jags as well. Um and when they wanted to do anything, they, they knew got the new lofty really well, and we used to buy parts off the factory, um, and that's how the family was into it basically. And we was known as the Jag Garage back in South Wales and Risca. Right. So, so therefore, although it was a John Coombs entry, it was always presumably therefore owned by the factory. Yes, basically. Yes, it was always it was always a factory car. 
Yeah. Any modifications, any work had to be done with it was always done back at the factory. That's interesting, isn't it? Because that wasn't the perception, that wasn't the way that people saw it. That uh, yeah, I think people understood that it was it was blessed by the factory, but that it was John Coombs entry. That's a, no, yes, an interesting yes. one. And how how original is it today, Grant? Pretty much it is as is. Apart from we put our own personal touches over the years on the car, but the car is is totally you know. It's the shells all original. The engine is there on the side, but we don't run the engine. Uh, we it's, we run a raw beer racing engine in the car. But yeah, I, if you look at the car, like you know, we restored it back in nineteen ninety eight uh, or ninety seven for the first for the first revival. Um, but like I said, now every mark and dent's got rust coming through the door. I mean, it, it is as is. I mean, it, it's we try and keep it. As totally original as you possibly can. Fabulous, and, and all all power to you for that because that that counts for a lot in in my book that it is it is original. I mean, obviously you've put a a cage in it and things like that, which you have to do. But uh, yeah, well, no, to have we don't. Um, I'm not. I don't have to run a cage. Do you not? No, no. It doesn't. It doesn't require to run a cage in the car. And the only reason I put for years and years and years, I ran without it because I didn't want it altering the style of the car. So um, it was only because it, you know uh, insurances got harder and harder with the, with revival and stuff like that. So um, we had to run a cage, put a cage in the car for that reason, purpose only. Um, otherwise, I was quite happy to keep running without the cage. Yeah, I mean, it keeps it uh, keeps it original, doesn't it? Yes, but it's actually made it it's even faster now with the cage. So. <laughs> you, you've you've now got uh, another jag to play with. Yes, yes, we've jag, got jag four hundred. Yes, yes, which is the ex-Equipment um, Endeavour car, um, Sterling Moss's car, basically. Um, uh, it, and that's, again, it's, it's another factory car. Uh, we've had it for a long time. Um, we were going to start building it. Well, we started building it years and years ago, and then we just stopped. Um, basically, the, the, the rules for St. Mary's 60s cars was was stifling the Mark IIs, basically. Um, um at the moment, the Mark II's are sort of running. They were running like 16, 17 on the grid. And we, that's why we stopped building the car, because we didn't want to sink the money into the car. And I haven't got the money to sink into the car. No. To, to no. run that far back down. But but they've they've reviewed those rules, have they? Yes, yes. So um, we had a chat. Revival had a chat with us, basically. Um, and they asked, you know, what, what do you need to make the car get further forward? And I said, basically, said, look, if you want it to be quicker, just you've got to run what was standard on the car at the time. Um, it's quite, again, it's quite a unique car. It's a bit like by one. So back in sixty, in sixty, it was built with a dry sump, wide angle head, uh, and it was all lightened off again, the same. Um, all right. Okay. Yeah. So and then they just sort of I got proof. I said, yes, there's the build sheet for the car. Uh, it's all written in black and white on the build sheet. So, and they said, okay, that's fine. As long as you've got proof of it, you can run it on the car. And we did. So we finished the car off for speed week. Um, and it instantly put me top seven, six and seven. You know I mean, so I was 10 places in front of the nearest Jag. Right. So, uh, so obviously those, those period modifications have, have made a difference as well. Yeah, it made a huge difference. The power, the power, it's basically power. We've got more power in the car, basically. Because Keep Endeavour always ran the 400 registration, didn't they? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Because so, it was Sutworth's car, wasn't it? Tommy Sutworth's car. Yeah, yeah. And that's obviously it's 
it's a car which yeah has history throughout. Presumably, it's never been a road car properly. Well, no, not no, it was always a race. It was always a racing car. I mean, it said it was a, when we when we sort of inherited the car, it was just it was a rotten wreck. Basically, it was just you know just it needed major major work done to the car. Did it um, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just it's just one of those cars. It's like anything. Back in the day when they produced the cars, they Jaguar was producing so many cars at the time and different bits and pieces. There was no really monetary value to them. They were just basically sold on, and they, and they and they get forgotten about. I mean, like our car, which was by one, and it, which was two eight seven JBK, was the original registration. You know, it got forgotten about for you. We had it since day one, but it got forgotten about. It was just left in the shed. Right, right, yeah. Which I, I suppose, yes, it happens, and that the the value, both in terms of money and also the history really is, has only come into its own in the last 20 years, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Basically, since Revival, since Revival sort of kept yeah. on, that's what, you know, they've all come about since then because everybody wants a car to run at Revival. So all these cars are coming out of the woodwork now and, they, you know, they, you know, they're being pulled from left, right and centre. Um, but, yeah, it's, like I said, we've had it for a long time. You know, I I, I got no interest in selling the cars whatsoever. I mean, they, they are family cars. As far as I'm concerned, I want my family to run them and my kids to run them if they want to run them. Yeah, yeah, and and, and all, all power to you for that. The uh, the Mark One and the Mark Two to the um, to the uninitiated look very similar, but how how do they drive? Do you know what? Right, they are identical cars. They drive exactly the same. They because they are the Mark Two is basically is a continuation from the Mark One, so. Mm. Uh, Suspension-wise, it's pretty much the same. Um, the only real difference is, is the CCs of the engine. There's more, there's slightly more power in the 3.8 to the 3.4, but they do, uh, they handle exactly the same. Right. Okay. Because it, there's a, a narrower rear track, isn't there, on the Mark One? Yes. On, on, on the Mark One, there's narrow rear track. But even back in the day, they ran the Mark Two back axle on by one from an early day. Okay. Okay. So, uh, yeah, but it's interesting to know that the the shenanigans within motorsport are not new, are they? No, it's not. It's an old trick. It's just it's been going around for years and years and years. And tell me, I have to ask you: yes. when you're racing these cars, are you aware of their heritage? I am. Yes, I am. I'm very aware. Like I'm, you know, it's kind of weird, but. I, I always say a little thing, something in the car. You know, I, I just thank, I thank my granddad for buying, basically buying the car back in the day. I mean, and I, I am very, very lucky and privileged to do what I do. You know what I mean? So I, I never forget that ever. When you get these gaps, you know, the gap up here, and I think, okay, I can fit down that gap. And I think, no, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't need to. You know I mean, you just hand back. Something something always turns up. You know what I mean? And at the end of the day, it, it is steel. You know, it's just metal. We if we bend yeah. it, we scratch it, we, bend, we can fix it. Because my family's been doing so long, there's nothing we can't fix on the car. So it is, it is to me, it is, it is a racing car. You know what I mean? Yeah. I will drive it hard when I want, when I need to drive it hard. But I do think, okay, look, my family's been driving this car for so many years. I want my next generation to drive it as well. So I do think of that as well. So given all that, and given the history of the cars and, and just what that means, to all of us, how do you feel about racing against what are effectively brand new cars looking like old cars? That it, it's it, it's hard. It is hard because it's it's 
Um, racing these days now is open checkbook racing. That's the problem you've got. I mean, and, um, we've, we've, you know, I've, I've been top three virtually every year gone revival. Um, and it's, it's getting harder and harder to beat them because it's just the case of you, your money talks. Uh, I'm, my father, I'm very lucky because dad, dad knows these cars left, right? And he literally, I can say, dad, I got an issue. It's not running right. It's not right. Can you sort this out? You, get, you know, turn your tweet there. And before I know it, I'm on a second fast or more on, on pole. So, but it, it is getting more and more difficult to try and stay at the top without spending more money on the car. And then presumably losing that originality as well. Yes, yes. I mean, it's like now, you know, for, for this year's revival, we've had, a, you know, the car's been, it's, it, outside is as normal, okay? But it's all new shock absorbers. We've had to replace on the car, you know, new discs, new pads, um, yeah, yeah, things only last so long, so you've got to renew it, and you've got to you've got to move the times, and then you basically you know you find out what's the best to go on the car uh, for safety as well, like so. Yeah, and and obviously safety is important, yeah. but but I, I think it is interesting that in that St Mary's Trophy at Revival, uh, a large proportion of the cars didn't exist as as we see them, oh, even no. five years ago. No, oh, definitely not. Definitely, not. It's, it's like you—you you look now. You look at look at look at the A40s are, um, and you know, the Alfa the Alfa Romeo. I mean, they they're right at well. I'm fighting with them now, and, and I'm I'm only reason I'm only it's just it's, you've got a bit more power to pull down the straight, but corner and break in, you, you can't keep, compete with them basically. Um, and they were again those cars. They're not. Then how can you say it? They're not the same car, you know. If you put, if you, if you took my car, okay, and put it next to a standard Mark One, my suspension, the geometry of it is exactly the same as it was fifty years ago, okay. You look at an Alfa Romeo or an A40, and they're not the same as they were forty years ago. No, no, no way. And no. I suppose part part of that is tire technology, isn't it? In that yeah. it's yeah. about trying to keep keep the car as flat as you possibly can, because yeah. if you if you look at, at any sort of saloon car race from the period, that the cars have all sorts of strange angles of lean, whereas yeah, yeah, these, yeah. these days they're flat as could be. And, and presumably yeah. you've kind of built that into the Jags. Yes, yes. It's like any, any racing car. The natural progression of the racing car is to go faster. I mean, and, and you, you want to go faster because you've, you've got to keep moving with the time. So you said they won't, stand, they won't stand still. So you'll keep improving stuff to go quicker. Um, but yeah, you know, but that's just the way life is, and that's you know, I mean, you, you accept that, and you move on, and you just try and move with the times, basically, and try and compete with everybody else. It's all you can do. Um, yeah, I, I either do that or don't turn up. It's... Don't turn up. Yeah, and even <laughs> indeed, I want to be. I you know, I don't go to make the numbers up. I, I want to win. So yeah, I still got that drive and that passion to win. Now you're running which car at Revival this year? By one this year. By one, okay, which is. Very much like an old pair of slippers, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is like an old pair of slippers. Yes, yes. And um, you, you, uh, you had some great dices last time out with that. And do you think you can, uh, you, you can get on the podium? You can win it. Well, do you know, all right. I was uh, 2019. I was happy to get top five because we the way things are moving on. Um, and do you know what? I'm this year. 
we've done a lot more development on the brakes and the suspension of the car. Um, and we're hoping, I'm hoping to be top three. That's the plan. I mean, I'd like to, I'd like to win. I'm not going to say to make the numbers up. And I said to Brian, I did say to Brian the other day, I said, babe, I, I, I want to win this year. I really want to win. So, you know, I mean, I'm planning on it, but you never know on the day. It's, it's all down to what happens <laughs> on the day. Well, it would be great. As a, as a Jaguar owner myself, I have a Mark II in the shed. So uh, I wish you well with that. Grant Williams, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. And uh, good luck at the revival. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Jaguar had always had an image for making fast and sporty cars, which didn't cost the earth. You could go and spend tens of thousands of whatever it was in Italy, but the Jaguar was not for the man in the street, but certainly for the man in the, in the high street. And that they were reasonably priced in that particular environment. They absolutely excelled themselves when they produced the E-Type, because in March 1961, this was a car which just, it's hard to explain that it was front page of every Every newspaper, it was all over the television, such as it was in those days. And there is probably no one on the planet who knows more about E-types than Philip Porter. And I asked him about this amazing car. There's one man who has become the go-to authority on everything to do with E-types, an E-type guru, if you will. Also well-known as the man behind Porter Press International, who produced some fabulous books, incidentally, about all sorts of cars and automobilia. Philip Porter, you've been in love with Jaguars for a very long time, haven't you? Indeed, probably far too long. It seems to have stretched back a very long way now, yes, absolutely. And obviously, as I say, E-type guru, but the E-type was not just a flash-in-the-pan new new thing. It really came from that long line of Jaguars that we, we all know and love. Well, very much so. You're absolutely right. And that really all started. Well, I mean, we can go back and back and back. But uh, the XK120, of course, evolved into the C-Type designed for competition by Malcolm Sayer, uh, who designed the bodywork to be as aerodynamically as efficient as possible, yet still retain some Jaguar resemblance and obviously to win Le Mans, and which is, of course, succeeded in doing in 51 and then again in 53. And I think the significance of that is enormous because the two races that were known in the States, the United States of America, which is, was, of course, the potentially biggest market uh, for Jaguars, uh, the two races known to everybody who would appear on the front page of all the newspapers were Indianapolis and Le Mans. And so winning Le Mans put Jaguar on the map worldwide and did more to publicise the name, the brand, than any other single factor. So, and, yeah, we, we can see the heritage running through C-type to D-type and then very much D-type into, into the E. But it was that launch of the E-type at Geneva was, I mean, it's nothing, nothing short of sensational, wasn't it? Well, absolutely. Uh, the E-type was an enormous step forward. Jaguar's product range, then the XK had been a brilliant car when it was first launched, but it was 1948. And so not surprisingly, by the early 60s, by 6061, the concept was becoming a little uh, dated. And so Jaguar, who had been a ludicrously small team of engineers, had been devoting themselves 
to the competition cars for some time. And this is one of the reasons that Jaguar gave up. And so the engineers could concentrate on the production cars and catch up and, and overtake the opposition, the competition. And this is what they did with the E-Type. It was a radical step forward. It brought, once again, as the 120 had done in its period, racing car performance to the road. And yet with a sophistication uh, that uh, was unknown at that time to combine such performance with reliability and uh, sophistication. Now, you, um, I've just finished reading your book, 9600 HP, which is about a car which you've owned for a very long time, which was involved in, in that launch, wasn't it? Absolutely. Well, this car was the one of the uh, prototypes. There were two roadsters that had been used for several years for prototype work, and then two fixed-head coupes uh, in late 1960, uh, one of which... Um, was then uh, registered for the road, used for a lot of development testing on the M1, etc., trying to achieve the magic 150 miles an hour, which was terribly important to Jaguar because, well, apart from anything else, there's a, there's a charisma, of course, about uh, achieving that magic figure, but also uh, the um, printed material, publicity material had already been uh, created and so on. So the the tail was <laughs> wagging the cat, you could say. The tail was wagging the cat. So... So they had to achieve that. And uh, Norman Dewis, the chief tester, uh, in fact, the only tester, so the chief was rather redundant, um, <laughs> was was pounding up and down the M1 and round and round Myra, etc., doing such things as taking the overriders off to achieve an extra couple of miles an hour, taking the motive bar out of the bonnet, taking the, the um, trade plates off, and that sort of thing to try and achieve those magic lasts three or four or five miles an hour, which the E-Type was struggling to actually achieve. And then uh, the car evolved into the press car um, and was lent to a number of uh, leading newspapers and magazines, such as Autocar and Autosport, etc., and the Daily Telegraph and so on, pre-launch, so that the gentlemen of the press would have their articles ready so when the car was actually launched, they would be able to write about it uh, and and uh, print their road tests and so on. The autocar just, just, and I interviewed the guys involved, the editor, Maurice Smith and Peter Riviere, uh, and they just, and entirely generally, they didn't fudge it. They did just achieve a two-way mean of 150 point something, fractionally over the 150. Uh, wow. <laughs> and so that was that aspect of the car's roll up to then. And then with the Geneva launch uh, coming up, they'd chosen the Geneva Motor Show, or Geneva Salon, as it was known in those days, uh, for the launch, uh, ideal in many ways, being in, in the heart of Europe, etc. And But there was still a lack of cars. They'd hardly built any at all. And so they quickly built up a, a roadster shell as a fixed head, and that was transported out, and that was to be in the restaurant in a park just on the outskirts of Geneva to be actually unveiled. Um, but they needed a car to be photographed outside um, and with Sir William, etc. And so Bob Berry, who was the PR manager at the time and had, had a, a very good, potentially superb racing career until uh, Sir William told him he had to choose between his job and motor racing, uh, he'd raced D-types very successfully indeed. He was a brilliant driver. And he was uh, given the task of getting 9600HP 
out to Geneva in time for the press launch the day before the motor show opened. He inevitably there were last minute delays. The uh, rear tailgate sprung open, this, that and the other. Anyway, he finally left and drove, as he put it, flat out like a race from beginning to end from Coventry to Geneva. Maximum revs in every gear uh, all the way there, overtaking all the lorries that on the the milk run, as it was known. He didn't dare go through the mountains because they might have been closed because of the snow at that time and so on. He arrived basically with 20 minutes to spare and uh, said to him, good God, Barry, what on earth kept you? (laughs) 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 And so after the the car in the restaurant was unveiled, everybody, all the press and everybody went outside and Sir William stood with the with uh, 960 HP and then it was used for uh, testing, for, for demonstrating, I should say, uh, to the public. Um, people could request a, a demonstration run. It was a sort of makeshift uh, circuit uh, on the outskirts of Geneva on ordinary closed roads. And uh, people were asked if they wanted to go fast, very fast or extremely fast. And they came <laughs> back They came back shaking, <laughs> looking very white <laughs> indeed. Um, and this was so popular um, that um, Lyons phoned back to the factory and said, get another car here as quickly as you can. So Norman dropped everything and jumped into the other press car, the Roadster, 77RW, and similar to Bob, drove flat out straight to Geneva, where he then helped with the demonstrating. And uh, they were far quicker than the Ferraris present, which is interesting. And um, mm. they obviously had great fun because they were also competing with each other to see who could be quicker. So, so, so there we are. That's that's sort of the Geneva launch. It's all very dramatic, and, but uh, fabulously successful. And it was only a few days after that, wasn't it, when the first two cars were in that uh, in that race at Alton Park? Well, it was actually a few weeks. Uh, right well, they kept on announcing that the new E-Type was going to be at race meetings, and then they didn't appear because they hadn't basically built any at that stage. They were still getting sort of into production, as it were. And uh, so, uh, as you say, it was in April, um, month after the launch in March, um, that two cars indeed, uh, the two um, um, Equipe Endeavour team run by Tommy Sopworth and the Coombs of Guildford team, uh, John Coombs, and so on. Coombs had Roy Salvadori in the car, and Tommy Sopworth had Graham Hill. And uh, would you like me to describe the, well, I can't describe in detail the race, but basically uh, Salvadori led. Uh, they had a right old ding-dong at the front, the two E-types. There was also a short wheelbase uh, Ferrari driven by Jack Sears up against them, and Innes Ireland, no mean driver, obviously, in well, both both top pilots, of course, um, in a GT, GB4 GT Aston. So some pretty stiff competition, both sort of competition-based cars as opposed to the E-Type, which was, of course, very much a road car and, 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 and not at all modified at this stage. And so Salvadori led until his brakes started to go off. Unfortunately, had uh, they'd started to play up in practice. There wasn't time to change uh, the discs, so they cut up the, the pads a bit. And, and Hill overtook him and took a fantastic victory with Roy being uh, third. And it's it, it's interesting that that race wasn't just in front of a few thousand people at Alton Park. It was televised as well, wasn't it? You know, I don't actually know that. So well, I, I do, can't answer I, that one. <laughs> I do because I, I watched it. 
and uh, as a, as I always say on these podcasts, as a very small boy, but um, surely, surely from your pram. <laughs> Philip, you're doing a great job. <laughs> um, no, I can, I can remember watching that and um, because being just blown away by it. And it was mm. on on Grandstand, which was mm. that uh, BBC yes. programme that would be a, a mixture of all sorts of different stuff. You'd say, well, we're going away from the football now to cover the horse racing from Kempton Park. Well, that was the um, maddening thing. I do remember that very well, that they'd you know, be sort of whatever the other sport was, cricket or, or motor racing, would be a very tense sort of two laps to go and anybody could win. And now we're going to the 3.15 at Haydock. <laughs> yes, it was absolutely. maddening, maddening. <laughs> Well, they they did that in front of a TV audience. I think that was that was remarkable in itself. And the the E Type legend was was born. I think at that point the the Coombs car. And again, I know you've uh, you published a book on on the four WPD because the Coombs car, which was running the registration number by one, as nearly all these cars did, um, didn't that go on to be the prototype lightweight? Absolutely right. It gradually evolved through uh, 61, first year, getting gradually modified, and then much more modified in 62 with a lighter weight steel shell, etc. And then when Jaguar realized they've got to do something a bit better to try and combat the GTO, um, they went on to create the lightweight E-types with an aluminium body monocoque and an aluminium block engine, Etc. And and took it a bit more seriously. And as you say, by one, which had changed to be four WPD, was the prototype number one lightweight E, which was run by Coombs again. And I, I absolutely got lost in your book um, on on that car on four WPD, because it's it's like it's like looking at uh, an actor who's. Who's had so much so much facial work done that <laughs> you can't you can't see the two together. But thinking about those lightweights, uh, that that then there were the the low drag lightweight E types as well, which really stretched the regulations as far as they could, didn't they? Well, that was a in, very interesting concept, I think. Sayer Malcolm Sayer, the aerodynamicist, designer, etc., had created an E-Type GT even before launch on paper. He created this because it was intended to run a team of GTs in the, now forgive me, I haven't uh, looked up this information lately, World Manufacturers GT Championship, Sports Car Championship, whatever the correct terminology. It changes every five years. (laughs) Well, indeed, absolutely like the regulations, very confusing indeed. But it was believed it was going to be the championship was going to be the GT cars. Um, and so there's going to be a team of E-type GTs, which had the low, low drag configuration. And if Jaguar had done it and done it seriously, that could have been very exciting indeed. But if I recall correctly, I think I stated in my book, Ultimate E-type, um, that uh, Enzo Ferrari put pressure to, on uh, the authorities and the idea was dropped. And uh, the sports prototypes, I think I've signed saying still, we're still uh, contending for the, the championship as opposed to GT cars. I think that's correct. And anyway, so there was to have been this, this, this low drag configuration. They did subsequently build a shell 
but it just sat around in Browns Lane until Dick Prothero, privateer racer, very successful Jaguar mm-hmm. privateer, um, saw it and persuaded them to uh, build it up and, and let him acquire it, purchase it. And he ran that uh, very successfully uh, in many ways, um, uh, particularly at the high-speed Reams circuit, or us. Um, and and uh, so that, that, was, that was very successful. Um, and then basically when Peter Lindner, uh, who had one of the lightweights, standard, as it were, lightweight, wanted to run it at Le Mans in 64, it was it went back to the factory and was given the low drag treatment. So there's basically only one low drag lightweight, to be absolutely precise, completely nerdy about it. But there is also a privateer team, a uh, splendid gentleman called Peter Lumsden and Peter Sargent. And their early car had also uh, basically evolved considerably. And, uh, well, let's say, sorry, their first E-type evolved considerably. Then they replaced that with... Um, well, actually, with a, um, a GT Lister, the Coupe Lister Jaguar, uh, which they ran at Long in 63, I think it was. And then they um, their E-Type was gradually modified by some gentlemen from the um, world of um, education, if you like, they were they were one was a professor, one was a another uh, sort of development engineer working at Imperial College London, where they were looking into combustion and such things. And these gentlemen gradually got involved with the car and evolved it both mechanically and visually and uh, exterior body work wise, and created something very similar, totally independently. Um, slight differences between the cars, but something similar. And particularly the difference is the nose. You may, uh, that car um, has um, a, a Van Wall type nose because they took some <laughs> advice from Frank Costin, who of course was involved in designing the Van Wall. And incidentally, we have a Van Wall book coming out uh, shortly. But that's completely, that. <laughs> completely irrelevant to what we're talking about. Um, and, and so that car at 49 FXN, uh, very interesting car indeed, and and also had the low drag treatment. Yeah, and and you're right that the the parallel development of those those two lightweights ended up very similar, but nonetheless um, came from a completely different angle, really, the, the academia rather than the other way around. Absolutely. And of course, the um, the Lindner knocker car was destroyed in an accident at Monlery, wasn't it? Well, to be precise, not destroyed, but very, very heavily damaged, sadly. It was a horrific accident which uh, cost Peter Linda his life. Uh, it's thought that the car was caught by a gust of wind, very high-speed banked circuit, of course, at Pontellary. And uh, and tragically, um, he died. Um, and the car sat around for a while. It was impounded. Uh, subsequently, it was... Um, released and um, a car was built up with a new a new genuine lightweight shell and the bodywork the damaged bodywork kept to one side and and much later on that was then totally and utterly rebuilt so the whole became uh, a complete genuine car again which is great I, I love that that circular thing that we do see from time to time of, of cars being put back together where they've been chopped apart and put to you know, one car makes two etc mm. 
Mm. Do all the lightweight E-types still exist? Bar one. Uh, one uh, was destroyed uh, at Le Mans. Uh, one of the three Cunningham lightweights uh, in 63 um, had a massive accident when Bruce McLaren's works Aston Martin dumped the contents of its sump onto the Mulsanne Strait and Salvo, Roy Salvadori, uh, arrived at, at very high speed, something like 160 uh, to find himself on a pool of, of oil. He initially thought he'd held it and, 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 and said to himself, God, Salvador, you really are the cat's whiskers. But in <laughs> fact, at that speed, he failed to completely hold it and, and had a massive accident. Um, and another car also involved um, caught fire and the French driver lost his life tragically. Um, and Salvador was thrown out through the rear window of the hard top and was... Um, very, very badly bruised, but but no more. But that was bad enough. I remember him describing to me he could barely walk for, for a couple of weeks. So that that car um, no longer exists. But there, is, there are eleven of the twelve. Although, of course, like like certain other cars, rather more than the eleven still exist, as they say. <laughs> yeah. So all uh, all nineteen of the eleven originally built still exist. Exactly. <laughs> Tell me, what are your thoughts about the continuations that we now see around of produced by Jaguar um, of C types, D types, lightweights, XKSS and do you do you see those as real cars or do you see them as um, copies, fakes? What do you think? I see them as fakes. I I accept they're made by Jaguar, which gives them a certain extra credibility than other replicas, but to me they're no more than replicas. And I remember when there was a program made on television a little while ago and uh, Lord March was asked what he thought about them, whether they'd be acceptable at Goodwood, and he said, we don't have replicas at Goodwood. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for replicas, um, and we're in a very contentious situation at the moment because JLR are actively trying to put uh, all replica manufacturers out of business, certainly in the UK and, and EU, having won a court case in Sweden, uh, mm-hmm. proving to the court that the C-Type was a work of art as opposed to an aerodynamic sports racing car, and therefore it's governed under legislation, which is up for review in this country post-Brexit. So very important that people give their views as soon as possible. I think the end of August is the deadline, because if that legislation can be changed uh, for the UK, then it will be legal, as I understand it, to produce replicas again uh, and stop companies being closed down, literally closed down, and jobs being lost. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more, and I think that we're seeing an awful lot of that. And how, how do people make their feelings known? There is a government website. Um, there is a, a link that uh, uh, one, can, one can click on, obviously, um, and go through to make representations. I don't have the information in my head, but um, actually this uh, early this morning was working on a press release to do with all this um, so that we can try and get this publicized as quickly as possible uh, because it's absolutely crucial. And to me, it's utterly fatuous that uh, the C-type was designed to be a work of art 
just because Malcolm Sayre happened to do a few paintings in his spare time. He hated to be called a stylist. This is the irony of the situation. He was an aerodynamicist. And I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that uh, we've certainly seen Suffolk sports cars go out of business because of uh, yep. the cease and desist order that was was put on them. And uh, I know a number of other manufacturers in the UK have have had um, metaphorically had the heavies round. And yep. um, that uh, yeah, it's a great shame because you know you and I both love Jaguars uh, and. It kind of leaves a nasty taste in the mouth, I think, to to have this because all of those cars, you know, we started by saying the C-Type was a beautiful evolution from the XK120 and that it it was it was everything that it should be. It's part of our motoring history and to have it tainted now by legal action, I think, is a great shame. I feel very strongly about this indeed and yeah. being very active behind the scenes in connection with this. And I think it was expressed very well by the owner of a genuine C-Type who wrote to them saying, I am lucky enough, fortunate enough to own a genuine original car. Why not stop others? Why stop others who are less fortunate than me to enjoy such cars? Couldn't agree more. And I think that uh, we'll certainly put all that information up on our Facebook page and our Twitter pages um, so that anybody who wants to follow that through can and should. So if you feel strongly about it, then we'll certainly put that up in the next few days. Now, Philip, Enzo Ferrari loved the way that the E-Type looked. And depending on which quotation you use, it was the most beautiful car in the world or he quite liked it. But I know that you may be biased but is it the greatest car of all time <laughs> well <laughs> it depends that's a, a that's a very leading question isn't it uh it depends i suppose how you define greatest car of all time i mean are you thinking of appearance or performance what i have said for many many years if they had been built in the same sort of numbers as say a GT40 or a or a GTO or whatever, then I think the E-Type would be the most desirable car in the world. The fact that they were built in relative quantity, although in in right-hand drive form they're actually, particularly the earlier ones, are actually this is a very nerdy comment, but actually really quite rare. Yeah. Um, then, if they hadn't been built in such production, they would be uh, considered uh, very much more highly, as it were, just the fact. I mean, values are entirely reflected, um, I think, um, by um, the numbers produced. Uh, so, you know, if an E-Type today is, let's say, £100,000, if they built only a handful, then they would be uh, millions, no yeah, question. Yeah. Um, so greatest, I would probably contend greatest post-war sports car yes well that's not bad that's not bad <laughs> i i have one sort of favorite favorite child question which is that not only do you own 9600 hp but you will also own 848 cry which is the Red E-Type, which famously was pushed off a cliff in the Italian job, and that's a drop head. 
Um, favorite child question, which is the better one to drive? <laughs> Another <laughs> difficult question. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I, uh, firstly, I, yes, I am very fortunate indeed to own these two cars. I didn't actually know what I was purchasing or the full extent of what I was purchasing when I acquired 848CRY. Um, I knew it was an early car. I discovered that it had been raced in 1961 by Robin Sturgis. In fact, it was the most active racer of all in the first year. But I didn't know it was in the film until I talked to Robin Sturgis on the phone some months after I bought it, and he had just seen the film on television that weekend and recognized the registration. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known. So I'm very fortunate indeed. They are very different cars. Um, I'm afraid this is going to be a rather long and boring answer. Um, 9600HP uh, has been restored uh, to be as we believe the specification was when it was road tested. So it has a slightly, slightly hotter engine. It um, was what one today would call blueprinted, we think, at the time. Uh, Bob Berry used to say to me it was an engine of known performance which I think is a rather cryptic shorthand, for, <laughs> but he would, he would never admit it was more than that. Um, <laughs> but so um, it, it, it's a little bit sort of lumpy, low down, a little bit cammy, um, but the performance is terrific. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to drive. Uh, and each time, I think if I may slightly digress and make a point, um, when considering uh, cars and how good or bad they are, it's very important to make sure one's driving a good example. When we took uh, 9600HP back to Geneva in 2000 to celebrate the original run down to Geneva, um, then uh, work leading journalist who was then editor or had been editor of Classic and Sports Car uh, had never liked E-types until he drove one that just been freshly restored properly. Uh, and he was uh, amazed how good they were. So it's important one judges a good with a, on the basis of driving a, a good mm, car mm. that's just a general comment um so um it's it's terrific to drive um i i do press on in spite of its illustrious history um and it responds very well indeed uh it's 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 very quick but it has it's all totally original of course and one of the few shortcomings of the type original e-types was the gearbox which was really frankly pretty agricultural and very poor for a car of that performance. And there's no synchromesh on first. Now, about five or six years ago, we started something called the Round Britain Coastal Drive, which was an idea I had because I wanted to do something to support the, the uh, charity Pro Prostate Cancer UK, having had cancer, most of the prostate cancer myself. And so I came up with this idea and we started with uh, E-types. We did it for four years. E-types the first year, then XKs, then E-types, etc. And I mention all that because I took uh, Cry, as we generally call it, uh, on that, did the entire 18-day, 4,000-mile uh, Brown Britain coastal drive. And it proved to be absolutely superb to live with. Uh, no problem at all. So easy, particularly with the synchromesh on first, which makes such a difference. And also we have actually uprated the brakes to series two. So because that was another slight failing of the, the early E-types. So um, I mention all that because you, know, you really assess a car when you live with it for that long in all sorts of conditions from country lanes to traffic to fast dual carriageways 
etc. Absolutely superb to drive, totally practical, absolute joy and pleasure. If that's an answer that says that uh, which is your favourite child, I think I'll I'll leave it there actually. For they're equal. No, they're equal equally. Yeah, yeah, for for different reasons. Absolutely. Yes. I'm very fortunate. So, totally different cars in many ways. One, of course, being fixed, and the other open, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, no, that's that's great to hear that. And thank you for telling us about um, some of your experiences and sharing so much of your knowledge about E-types. Um, I can't let you go without saying that there are some great titles on the Porter Press um, website and uh, that's porterpress.co.uk have a good look at that because I I have I have wasted many hours going back through and through and through some of your some of your your great things and in fact as I speak to you now there are a couple of them on my desk waiting for me to uh, to dive in and do a bit more but for now I hope you'll come back and talk us get talk to us again Philip but uh, Philip Porter thank you very much indeed thank you very much Paul Jaguar was sold to the British Motor Corporation, which owned volume brands like Austin and Morris and Riley in 1965. But they largely left it alone. They didn't get involved too much, and senior management allowed the Jaguar management to get on and do their own thing. But then in 1975, BMC was merged with Leyland Motor Holdings, which was a truck manufacturer principally, to form British Leyland. This was a political move. Both of the both of the businesses were not being successful and the government wanted to put a new impetus behind them. It heralded the beginning of the end, ironically, of mainstream British motor industry and saw Jaguar run by a mixture on one side of the trade unions and on the other side by very cost-conscious accountants, which is not <laughs> is not a happy marriage, as you can imagine. In the midst of all this, British Leyland decided to rekindle the racing heritage and commissioned very successful and renowned racing team Broadspeed to create a race car based on their XJ12C. And Paul, you've done a bit of homework on this. Yep, yep. The uh, the Broadspeed XJ12Cs, um, possibly an area of Jaguar's long and usually glorious race history that a veil is best drawn quickly over, I think. And as you said, that, that decision was made in the mid-70s to return to racing. And, uh, you know, they were really targeting the European Touring Car Championship. And, uh, you know, Ralph Broad and the Broadspeed, you know, fantastic resume there. You know, if you're going to go to anybody, they were probably the people to go to at that time. And, uh, you know, they were tasked with turning that 5.3-litre XJ12 into a competitive race machine. And, uh, you know, I think warning flags, certainly for some people, started to be raised at the press launch when the drivers, and, uh, you know, there was a good driver lineup, including Derek Bell, were amazed to hear a Leyland spokesman declare that the new car, you know, which you know, you, I do have to say does look fantastic, you know, it is a fantastic-looking mm. race car, there's declare that their new car was going to win the opening round of the 1976 European Touring Car Championship at Salzburg in three years, three weeks time at a time when the car hadn't actually turned a wheel yet. <laughs> and, you know, fine ambition and, you know, let's aim high. But what this was really ignoring was the existence of BMW, who at that time were dominating touring car racing. That actually only failed to win that European title once between 1973 and 1983. 
So to go in with a completely new car and taking on the might of Munich was, uh, yeah, a big, big challenge. And, uh, you know, the cars were quick. They were fast race cars. They were rumoured to have around 550 brake horsepower. But but they were fragile. There were issues with the brakes, an overheating rear axle, and a chronic oil surge problem with the engine that was only sorted when they went to a dry, dry sump. And really, in that 1976 season, it was really all summed up by the last race of the year when that was the tourist trophy back at Silverstone and Bell put the car on pole for the first time and they actually led a lap. You know, they actually were leading the race side. And um, then another regular issue cropped up and a wheel fell off. And, you know, if ever there was a metaphor for a whole race campaign, it was campaign. It was that wheel falling off. And, uh, you know, the, the highlights of 1976 for them were that pole position and that fastest lap at Silverstone. And, you know, the cars had one more season of, of competition, but even then Leyland wouldn't make that commitment for months. They, you know, they actually already employed the drivers, but it was only the end of November when they really gave the go ahead for the season ahead. And, you know, not a lot of time in that case to do the major works that the cars were really crying out for. But somehow Bell and Andy Rouse took a surprise second at the Nürburgring. And again, if there's ever a circuit that really wasn't going to suit that big Jaguar XJ12C, it was the Nürburgring. And um, then back at the Tourist Trophy, they were again second. And with less than 10 laps to go, Rouse was actually chasing the lead car before he went off and their race was over. And uh, ironically, the car that they were chasing for victory was a BMW CSL driven by no less than Tom Walkinshaw. And uh, that, that is a name that is going to be cropping up from now on, I think, in all of these programs. But uh, in, in the words of Derek Bell, they were big, brutish cars, but tremendously fast. He said they were putting 170 miles an hour on the straight at the old Bruneau circuit. And that's the old road circuit, not the sanitized modern one. And uh, as Derek said, it was just a shame that their reliability was so dreadful. And uh, a quiet curtain was pulled over the campaign after those two seasons. It's interesting, Paul, because you said at the beginning of that, that Broadspeed were hugely successful in everything that they'd done. They, they were very, very successful with... Fords in the early days, minis before that, that they'd they'd been champions in in various different disciplines, particularly in the UK, that they'd gone on to to develop cars. Why did they get the Jaguar so wrong? It makes you wonder, and I, and I think you touched on it possibly in your um, introduction, and it was the the, the 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 pressure from above from the committee, if you like, within Leyland. They were constricted on time on what they had to do. And, you know, that they certainly had a car that was fast. But, you know, as we all know, you know, you can make a car, quick car reliable and you're going to have a successful car. And they just never had that opportunity to address those issues and make that car reliable. You know, I mentioned the wheel fell off at uh, the Tourist Trophy. That was a regular for the car. You know, it was forever shedding wheels. It's like the Porsches in the mid 80s in Group C. <laughs> well, and that and that design by committee was a problem at GM and Ford for many years when they dabbled in racing during, during that time. Uh, you know, when you get the bean counter involved, that's never a good, um, that's never a good recipe. That's a recipe for disaster. I think you're absolutely right, Jim. And, and that when you think of the really successful race teams in any discipline over the years, They've always been run by racers, um, and that's anything from McLaren in the early days where it was run by Bruce and latterly by Ron Dennis 
that you know both of those absolute racers, Frank Williams, AJ Foyt, any of those people, you know, they're absolute racers. And yeah, if you've got somebody in a very smart grey suit trying to run a race team, it's unlikely to be successful. It does make you wonder though that what if the cars had been, you know, Ralph Broad had been left to get on with it, and the cars had been successful, then they wouldn't have been pulled out after two seasons, and we would have seen Jaguar. And you know, they did come back to touring car racing with the XJS later on, but uh, they could have been a constant battling against BMW for years, and we may have seen some amazing racing. That is a that is a tantalising thought, actually, Paul. Uh, which which I can't even begin to think about. You know, but, you know, you know. Another thing that, as you look at pictures of the car, when you Google pictures of the XJ12C, front-on photos of the car remind me very much of the Bentley GT3 car of today. Yeah, very yeah, much so. Which quite, which is quite sort of slab-sided and slab-sided, um, big old front, pushing a lot of, you know, moving a lot of air. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's right. Incidentally, talking talking of pictures, pictures of all these cars will be on our Historic Racing News Facebook page and on at Hist Racing News on Twitter. So do have a look and um, and let us know what you think about Jaguar generally over the years. We'd love to hear from you and uh, please please feel free to go on to either of those to have a look. Paul, if I sorry, jump speech. in for a second and apologise to drag you back, but I've just done exactly what Jim suggested and looked at a picture, and the, the picture sums it up. If you look at the car from straight on, the <laughs> word Jaguar is not visible at all. It's Leyland on the stripe and Leyland where the number plate would be. Mm. That's, yeah, and that's very much a bean counter thing, isn't it? Because there was never a Leyland car. Right. Or there was in about 1923, I think. It was a truck, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, Leyland's were trucks, but but they did make a car back in the 20s. But no, so what on earth was it? Some ego trip for, uh, oh, I don't know. Don't get me started. Um, (laughs) Oh, go on. Start. No more callers. We have a winner. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, After that, certainly in motorsport terms, Jaguar lost its way a bit until British Leyland, I suppose probably inevitably, fell apart and the various constituent parts were sold off to different companies that BMW bought Mini and Ford bought Jaguar and Land Rover. And much of Ford's Ford's whole raison d'etre is is much more of a marketing-led business than British Leyland ever was. And they looked to Formula One to restore some of Jaguar's lost glamour. And, Joe, you've, uh, you've had a look at those, those beautiful-looking green Jaguar Formula One cars. Yeah, I, I remember at the time there was a lot of people were quite negative about the branding that went on with regards to Jaguar into F1 because Jaguar had obviously had this heritage and this history, this past history of being part of the World Sports Car Championship and Le Mans and were seen as an endurance kind of brand. When And, and to be honest, I, I didn't. I, I kind of liked that. Um, I, I wasn't really perturbed by it. I thought that Jaguar, you know, prestige, premier car range, um, was, Formula One kind of suited the image. Um, and it, it all stemmed from when Ford, who 
owned the brand Jaguar and it was a prestige car manufacturer of, of you know, the Jaguars of that time were kind of prestige, high-end sort of executive range cars. Um, Ford bought out uh, Stewart Grand Prix in the middle of 1999. And it, we, we all thought that, aha, you know, that, I mean, Stewart Grand Prix had done a cracking job. And as Formula One teams tend to do, they, they morph into other teams. And, you, you know, there's a myriad of those occasions when we can talk about that until the cows come home. But uh, in this instance, Stewart Grand Prix, who, who had won a couple of Grand Prix on very limited amount of budgets, Ford was a backer of Jackie Stewart when he formed the, uh, the, the, the team and, the, and went Formula One. But Ford got behind this and basically took ownership of the whole thing. So I remember back in the day, we, I certainly thought, oh, this is when we see what these people can really do. And it was kind of a transition year, the first season in 2000. You kind of, I, I understood that, you know, it was maybe a transition year and finding their feet and, the, and Ford kind of bringing in their own people, of which there was, there was many. Um, and it was, um, it was Wolfgang Reitzler who was running the operation. They didn't really do much, and we kind of forgive them for that because, like I say, it was, they were transitioning. Formula One's not as easy as it looks, you know, I, you, I always think, you know, a racing car is a racing car and you take it out the transport and put it on the track, but Formula One's not, is it? It's, it's a, it's a bit of a dark art. It's a bit of a, uh, uh, just, you know, takes, takes teams, very experienced people, a, a lot of years to get their fit, their footing in Formula One. And that came through massively in 2001 when Ford brought in Bobby Rahal, um, to oversee. Now, Bobby Rahal, Jim Roller will tell us the background of Bobby Rahal, you know, former Formula One driver, renowned team owner in the United States. And I, from looking from the sidelines, you thought, oh, it, you know, that, that's a good appointment. That, that, that's a good job. He then brings in Nicky Lauda as a kind of a, an advisory role. But if anything, that kind of was the magnesium onto water thing because that didn't actually work at all did it now jim you tell me i the, the way i saw jim bobby rahal knows what he's doing nicky lauda knows what he's doing both been around the motor racing block but was it a case of the two personalities didn't gel i don't think well yes there there was there was part of that i mean as we all are well aware nicky has his own irrepressible <laughs> style, um, which a lot of people liked. He was a no nonsense kind of guy, but the problem wasn't really in 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 my opinion. The problem wasn't really any clash between Ray Hall and Lauda. This thing was doomed from the beginning because we all saw Ford versus Chevrolet, the Ford versus Ferrari film. Um, mm. Le Mans 66, it was called in Europe, Ford versus Ferrari here in the United States. And all of the internal backbiting and stuff that you saw in the movie amongst the Ford executives, hmm. that carried on. And it still carries on. It's, that's corporate. That's big corporate culture in America. And this racing program was the victim of that because it was done by committee. You had 
you had uh, Edsel and 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 the guys who back motorsports wanting to do go full force and do this, and you had everybody else in the bean counters going, ah, "This is ridiculous. Nobody cares about Formula One in America." Blah blah blah. Um, well, let's put an American face on it. Let's get Bobby Rahal over there. Well, mm-hmm. and Bobby, to his credit, went in there, saw that it needed a a, a strong hand on the tiller, and he brought in Lauda. Um, and everybody said, well, they didn't, they didn't, they, you know, your description of it was accurate, magnesium and water. Um, yeah. but I suspect that was more to do with interference from Dearborn than it was yeah. any sort of problem between Ray Hull and Lauda, although so, they are both very strong personalities. Yeah. So it was more Ray Hull who was fending off the corporate side from across the Atlantic um, and Nicky Lauda, who was a, he's a pure racer. There's no escaping that. And everything he's been involved with in Formula One has borne success. And so, I, I, so am I right in uh, kind of viewing that then, uh, Jim, as Bobby being kind of the piggy in the middle with regards to dealing with the Ford corporates and Nicky Lauda, who just wanted to go racing and knew how to. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And yeah. and Nikki wasn't getting the answers he wanted. And you know, Bobby was that classic the the middle manager that has all the responsibility without the authority. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know. I, uh, that, I take I all mean, the blame, but I can't but I'm not allowed to fix it. I mean it's <laughs> yes. it's, it's it's written that the conflict between Lauda and Rahal led to Rahal's resignation and Part of that was when the uh, the organisation had a, attempted to, to draw in Adrian Newey, which is a bit. When when I go on to tell you what happened to Jaguar, that that's a bit of an oddball. They tried to lure Adrian Newey from McLaren, it, it failed. And you know what? Looking back, you might we might think like you know from the inside and what Adrian Newey could see was going on on the inside of Jaguar. Jaguar, that's probably what kept him away. Because uh, he did, you know, it was about three or four years bef- before he went there under a new name, which we'll come to later. Um, they only got, they only ever won two podiums, both with Eddie Irvine and both for third place. Um, one in the 01 season and one in the 02. They did score championship points, but they were never a team when they went into any Grand Prix. They never really, uh, they, they never looked like they were you know, getting on top of the job, they always looked like they were struggling. And, and maybe the, it was a case of, you know, a, a lack of funds. The, in the 2003 season, the funding was reduced again. Um, there was redundancies of about 70 staff, including Mr. Lauder. Um, and that was because they get, they'd given him a two-year time frame and they basically didn't see any improvement in that two-year time frame. So it was very, very cutthroat, wasn't it? Very... I call that very American in their kind of bit, the way they go about business. It's like you didn't deliver, so you're out. Um, and even though you're Nicky Lauda, it doesn't really matter a jot. You didn't deliver the results, so you're out. And 2003, 2004, I mean, they brought in some pretty talented people. Mark Webber, for instance, Antonio Pizzonia, Justin Wilson replaced Pizzonia. Uh, I think that's probably down to budget. Um, and when you think that, you know, the, the, the Jaguar team was then sold off to Didier Matasic's of Red Bull fame. And from 2005, 
the building of where perhaps Jaguar could have taken it with the right resources and the right attitudes, what we saw in the evolution of Red Bull, when you look at the very foundation, all right, you could argue that the very foundation was Stewart Grand Prix, but then there's a lot went on in Jaguar that was then, you know, it was fundamentally the same mechanics and body of people, yet yeah, the, the top level changes often, but there was, you know, the, the, there was perhaps the seeds of greatness within that Jaguar Formula One um, episode, if you like, that could have borne fruit. But I think it was just, I think from the outside, it looked very ill-managed. And I think that that's going to be on their gravestone. Here lies Jaguar F1, the, an ill-managed epitaph to them. But it wasn't uh, it wasn't unique to to Jaguar F one, was it? No, I mean, it wasn't. We look at things like Toyota, for example, in Formula One. Yeah, very that, good um, point. They yeah. had a, a similar kind of problem. Yeah, it's it's a great point, and uh, I kind of just sort of began to mention that it's, you know to to do F one, it's not like the seventies where you could you know you could buy a second hand chassis or even. Uh, commission a chassis builder like Lawler or somebody to build you a car and strap a cos with DFV and do a Hesketh. Um, Formula One has become a, a behemoth, really, of of the, the sport. And to do well at it, it costs a lot of money, a lot of money. And even back in the early 2000s, it was still costing a lot of money. Arguably, it costs even, even more now. But, you know, it was still costing a lot of money. And maybe Ford just, you know, using it as a, as a marketing tool for their Jaguar brand didn't really or were, were con- perhaps not as committed funding-wise as perhaps they should have been. But like you say, Paul, how many times have we seen that in Formula One? Yeah, and I think the other thing with that is that in a corporation like Ford, you would see the money coming out of a marketing budget and a marketing budget probably wouldn't roll forward more than two years. So so that if if Bobby Rahal or Nicky Lauda was saying, well, we need a three, four-year program until we start winning races, mm-hmm. they couldn't do that because they couldn't commit that money that far forward. And I think, you know, it's it's just the corporate world. It's nothing, it, nothing more it, than that. It is, and they, and they did actually say that they wanted to concentrate on their World Rally Championship, which was perhaps, you know what, that perhaps has a better fit with Ford, yeah. certainly the Ford we know, you know, the Escort, the uh, Sierra Cosworth, the, you know, the, the, um, that kind of rallying history and heritage is something that was very, very much um, the foundation of Ford in motorsport, certainly from where we live. Um, and may, maybe, you know, dipping a toe in the water, they they got their toe burnt. The water was too hot. Yeah, yeah. And presumably, Jim, when um, when a guy walks into the Ford showroom in the US, if he's thinking motorsport at all, he's thinking NASCAR. Exactly. And if he's thinking content, inter, uh, intercontinentally, uh, he's thinking rally. Um, and that's... You know, um, that's just the way it is. That's that's the dominant motorsport here in the United States, and that's where the majority of the money goes from from the manufacturer standpoint. And ever it was such. You, you mentioned about the uh, the, the Greystone 
Joe. So <laughs> yes, what, yeah. What's um, what what else is written on that gravestone? Um, nice try. <laughs> you know, um, you know, because uh, what I mean is, you, you know, when you when you look at it on paper, and you see names like the people who were who were involved, like Bobby Rahal, Nicky Lauder, um, John Hogan, of you yeah. know the, the marketing guy of Marlborough. I mean, that guy was has just oozed success and knowledge of of how to go about the the the, the business of Formula One racing. Um, on paper. It had all the hallmarks of being a successful Formula One team, having, you know, served its apprenticeship, having taken over from Stuart Grand Prix, served its apprenticeship, got on its feet, brought in Ray Harlan Lauder. You know, what what was not to like about that plan? But it just maybe, you know, I, I, I did it. it could, invariably with Formula One, it always comes down to funding. And if you haven't got the funding to develop the aero, to develop the motor, to develop everything, literally everything on the chassis, a constant, constant, just soaks up every bit of funding that you have. Um, because Formula One is constant development. And, you know, you, you, you start, the, you start the, the, uh, the season in Australia uh, with a car, and the car is nothing like it was in Australia by the time you get to Hungary. Yeah. And then you've still got half a season left. Yeah, uh, and that's, that's, that's maybe what nice try I would say was you know it should have it should have worked on paper it had everything the recipe was good it's just the the cooking process we maybe left it a little bit undercooked at the end of the day. The historic racing news radio show. Well, that's it for the first episode of our two-part Jaguars in competition program. Next, we'll talk to people who've driven these cars on racetracks around the world. We'll talk about Bob Tullius in the USA and, of course, Tom Walkinshaw Racing. We will also look at the very exclusive One Make series for the XJR15 with some of the less clear dealings that allegedly went on. But before then, we'll have our usual News and Views programme, complete with our monthly game of Corridors of Power on 1st of September. We hope you enjoyed the show. So from me, Paul Tarsi, from Jim Roller, Paul Jurd and Joe Bradley, Until next time, bye-bye.